you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. The CEOs, authors, thought leaders, visionaries, and motivators. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. It's Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. Thechrisvossshow.com. Welcome to the show, my family and friends. For 15 years, three to four shows a week, kind of 15 to 20 shows a week. Uh, uh, what is it? Two, three shows a weekday, and we're doing about four now and 10 to 15 a week. Uh, we're bringing you the Chris Voss Show, the billionaires, the CEOs, the Pulitzer Prize winners, the people who advise presidents, the astronauts, the uh, brilliant authors that just come with their newest, hottest books right off the shelf. They're so hot, you can still get high off the ink. Do people still do that now? You can't do that with the Kindles, people, but uh, you can try, and we bring the brain bleed. And, of course, little old moi, me. I'm just the dumbass that shows up on the show with a mic and tells the story, and uh, we have all the great people that come on and share the intelligence. <laughs> And we have another on today. And as always, we're going to be talking a little bit about history. You're going to learn some stuff today, people, because as we always say on the show, this is a direct Chris Voss quote. The one thing man can learn from his history is that man never learns from his history. Thereby, we go round and round, my friends. Uh, so it's important to learn history and know history. And of course, some of the most interesting people are in history. Because I don't know. The politicians and people nowadays are kind of boring. They just all seem to be little robber barons or whatever but maybe maybe they weren't that different in the old days so we're going to get into it but in the meantime we would appreciate and love you forever the family the chris Fox show is a family that loves you but doesn't judge you but if you want to get even more love if you want to enter the realm of loviness of the chris Voss show uh please refer the show to your family friends and relatives go to goodreads.com forward says chris Voss, youtube.com forward says chris Voss, linkedin.com forward says chris Voss, and uh, Chris Voss won on the tickety talkie where all those kids are doing the dancing and stuff. And somewhere we're on there trying to be relevant, but, uh, it's of course not working. Uh, okay. Boomer. <laughs> I'm Gen X. Anyway, we have an amazing gentleman on the show. He's written a host of uh, uh, just a plethora, not just a host, but a plethora of an amazing books of history and figures in history and everything else. I'm just going to be delving into his um, history books after the show because there's a bunch that we talked about in the pre-show I want to read. Richard Aldous joins us on the show with us today, and his latest book just came out October 2nd, yesterday, 2023. Congratulations, Richard. His newest book is called The Dillon Era, Douglas Dillon in the Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson administrations. We'll be talking to him about uh, this amazing history, this uh, interesting man, and what we can learn from him and what we can probably learn not from him because man never learns from his history. See what I did there? I went, fell back to that thing. Richard Aldous is a historian of British and American politics and culture. His 10 books include, and uh, along with three co-edited, uh, Schlesinger, The Imperial Historian, Reagan and Thatcher, The Difficult Relationship, Macmillan, Eisenhower and the Cold War, and a dual biography of Gladstone and Disraeli, 
lives of Malcolm Sargent and Tony Ryan, and most recently, the new book, The Dylan Era. He teaches at Bard University, where he's the Eugene Meyer Professor of British History and Culture. He is a founding member of the editorial team at the American Purpose magazine and presents its weekly Bookstack podcast. I'm going to check into that. He writes regularly for publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the New York Times, has made numerous appearances on CNN, Spectrum News, Fox News, the BBC, RTE, and other broadcasting. He's a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. I feel like I need to say that in a British accent. And now he reaches the pinnacle of his appearances on media on the Chris Voss Show podcast. Welcome, Show Richard. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. I'm strapped in and I'm ready to go. There you go. All right. Well, sounds good then. Uh, it's not an OnlyFans show. Keep that in mind. I don't know what that means. But uh, thank you, Richard, for coming. Com, and we'll, uh, and uh, so people can look you up on the interwebs. Uh, so my uh, the best place to find me is at Bard, which is bard.edu. As you mentioned, I also host the Bookstack podcast for AmericanPurpose.com. So either of go. those places, that's where I am. You're strapped into the roller coaster of the Chris Voss show, ready for the brain bleed to come out of you. See, I can't even pronounce stuff. I've brain bled so much for all the amazing knowledge that folks like yourself uh, put these books together. So uh, give us a 30,000 overview of this new book, The Dylan Era. So this is the story of uh, Douglas Dillon, who's the Treasury Secretary in the Kennedy administration. So, mm -hmm. so far, you might think, okay, you know, pretty ordinary uh, politician. What makes him uh, interesting is that he was a Republican in a Democratic administration. Wow. Uh, he'd also been in the Eisenhower administration, where he'd, he'd been at the State Department. Uh, in 1960, Kennedy goes up against Nixon. Uh, no one's quite sure who's going to win, but everyone thinks that, that if Nixon wins, they're going to give Dylan the Secretary of State job. Oh. Nick loses. Kennedy comes in, and Kennedy offers him the Treasury Secretary. So he's a he's an interesting character because we we don't live in a particularly part, uh, bipartisan age. Mm -hmm. uh, Dylan is the quintessential bipartisan politician. There you go. Works for uh, Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson. So three different administrations. And he's a Republican. I can't remember. Was Eisenhower a Republican? I think he was, right? Yeah. So Eisenhower's a Republican, and then uh, Kennedy's a Democrat, and Johnson's mm -hmm. a Democrat too. So he works for uh, one uh, one Republican administration and two Democratic ones. There you go. And you know, we need people like this uh, that work in our governments that are aren't, aren't so much bipartisan, but people that just kind of keep the wheels chugging along. So who was this guy? Give us a background on on who was he and and how did he. How did he get uh, positioned to be in these administrations? Yeah, so he is the uh, the son uh, of uh, a man called Clarence Dillon, who um, runs Dillon Reed, uh, kind of on Wall Street. And Clarence Dillon is one of the fifty richest Americans, so um, a billionaire by uh, by today's in today's wow. money. Um, and you know, when uh, when uh, young Douglas is growing up, it's pretty much that Clarence sees him as as his as his banking heir. That he's going to run the firm, he's going to be on Wall Street, and that's that's what he does throughout the uh, throughout the thirties and the forties. Obviously, he like so many of the greatest generation, uh, he goes away and fights during the war. But mm -hmm. then it is not enough for him being on Wall Street. That he doesn't just want to be living in this very constrained. Uh, environment. He wants to do something else with his life, uh, and that's politics. And he's very lucky 
because, you know, most people, if they want to go into politics, they have to work their way up the system, climb up the ladder. But his father was a major donor to Eisenhower in 1952. Oh. Uh, he was a close friend of John Foster Dulles, who was Eisenhower's closest uh, advisor. Uh, and as so often happens in the American political tradition, ambassadorships are one of the ways in which you reward uh, your big, your biggest donors. So uh, Eisenhower offers the ambassadorship to Paris, uh, to France, uh, to Douglas Dillon, and that is his first political job. So he goes off to Paris, uh, where he's where he's ambassador, uh, and with uh, John Foster Dulles installed as Secretary of State. So he always has his uh, protector there at the highest level. There you go. Did he come up through Wall Street in the same era that uh, John Kennedy did? And so he's he's younger he's younger than Joe Kennedy. Um, mm -hmm. So, but it, that is when kind of Kennedy is around, and Clarence Dillon uh, would be a roughly a, contempor a contemporary of Joe Kennedy. The mm -hmm. the the relationship that um, that Dillon later has with John F. Kennedy, uh, I think, partly comes out of this shared this kind of shared background that uh, both of their fathers were millionaires. Uh, both of their fathers were quite. Um, uh, let's say had quite sharp elbows you know they they mm -hmm. weren't afraid to to be rough when they needed to be um they were both kind of players uh, in the in the financial world um but then the sons uh, had both been to harvard around the same time they'd there both go. gone into politics so there's there's a there's a lot of similarities and it's one of the things that jackie kennedy uh, said was that dylan was the only friend that Kennedy had in his cabinet. He was the only really? person that uh, that, Ken that the Kennedy saw socially. Wow, that's amazing. So he was a man of all sort of things. Did, was now the, I know that in the Kennedy administration, they were lambasted for being this new sort of generation of college-educated men and in, 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 you know, kind of more brainiacs, if you will. You know, that was one of the challenges I think they were having with the vietnam wars they were trying to run it from a from a college uh, logic brain aspect sort of thing uh i, I don't know if, if that's true or not but I, tell me if that's true or or you know if this is you know he was one of that generation this is the new sort of college people showing up in administrations so I think that that Dylan is slightly different to that group, but I think that it is uh it's it's broadly is true that David mm -hmm. Halberstrom idea of the uh, the the brightest mm -hmm. and the best and that these inc these inc as you say kind of um, to use the phrase of the time the eggheads academics like me um, people like George Bundy who came into the administration he'd been uh, dean of arts I think it was at uh, at Harvard so you know these kind of characters come in. Uh, and they see how things work theoretically, but maybe they lack that kind of more human level. They tend to be technocrats, people like uh, Robert McNamara. Dylan, I think, is is different though because he comes from that banking tradition. Um, and of course, the thing about uh, thing about Wall Street uh, is that. Uh, it doesn't really matter whether things work in theory for them. It has to work in practice, and they are empiricists because mm. it's all about making money. You know, you can't you can't say, well, you know, I, I think it should be this. I think it should be that. It's it, because if you do something for the wrong reasons, then you end up losing uh, in the money of the time. You know, hundreds of thousands, millions of uh, millions of dollars, and then you're out on your ear. So, you know, I think D D Dylan brings that kind of very 
professional, very pragmatic view uh, to polit politics. Above all, he is a pragmatist. There you go. So you've written a lot of great books. You've written about Schlesinger. We talked in the pre-show. One of my favorite first big books I read was 1,000 Days and and made me interesting in JFK. Uh, and uh, you've written about Eisenhower and the Cold War, Reagan and Thatcher. Uh Difficult relationship? Didn't they have a side thing going on? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, well, that's that's that's, that's one of the that's one of the arguments of the book. The, the traditional that way is that those two are, you know, uh, are always seen. It's like it's a political <laughs> marriage. You know, they loved each other. They never argued. That you know uh -huh. this kind of thing. And so that that other book is is arguing. Well, yes, they they had a very close political alliance, uh -huh. but they they disagree on almost every single issue. And I so the book kind of goes through each one of them, showing where they uh, where they disagree which is interesting because they're both so destructive i think to i mean a summation would be they're both so destructive to the middle class or was that is that maybe true or not There's i think that uh, so i mean the, the their relationship is really more about their foreign policy relationship mm. so it's about the it's about the end of the cold war mm. um so you know the way in which for example margaret thatcher is the person who introduces uh, reagan to gorbachev she mm -hmm. in effect vouches for gorbachev but then when he goes off to Reykjavik and offers the soviets that hey why don't we just give up all of our nuclear weapons she kind of describes that as like an earthquake under her feet and uh, just goes completely ballistic with him. There so, you, you know, I think that, uh, yeah, it's, 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 an, it's a really, really interesting relationship uh, between the two. The Iron Lady. Uh, coming to an OnlyFans near you. I don't know what that means. Uh, so what, what attracted you to the Dylan uh, gentleman, uh, Douglas Dylan? What, what, what was it that made you go, hey, this is something I want to write about? Yeah, so that I, I, in some ways that comes back to what you were just saying. That uh, like you, I read a thousand days when I was mm -hmm. uh, when I was a child. It was one of the first books really that grabbed my attention. It was up mm -hmm. on my up on my dad's bookcase, and at one point I kind of took it down and started reading, and I just almost couldn't stop reading. It's just su such a fabulous story, and you know, Schlesinger is one of the people in that book and in his diaries, and in his letters, and when I was working on his biography, that he keeps talking about Dylan as this, this really brilliant character. And, uh, you know, honestly, he didn't want Dylan in the first place. He tried to persuade Kennedy not to give Dylan the job uh, as Treasury <laughs> Secretary. He thought it was going to be a disaster. Uh -huh. And yet, after a year, he describes him as he des describes himself as Dylan's greatest fan. So that uh -huh. kind of really intrigued me because, you know, most people, I guess, unless they remember him from the, you know, signing the money, um, mm -hmm. won't really r know very much about Douglas Dylan. He's kind of receded uh, into the, you know, just into the wallpaper of that administration so i kind of felt you know why is it that at the time everyone thinks this guy is so important a really central character nixon wants him as, at the state department kennedy wants him at the treasury mm -hmm. schlesinger turns on a dime about him once he sees him in action why mm -hmm. is it that this guy who was so important now just kind of seems not to be written up as part of the history did he did he turn away from the nixon administration for being appointed well there? all i mean is uh, all all i mean is that he was if nixon had won in 1960 then oh, nixon okay. would have yeah. appointed him but because yeah. nixon loses then kennedy then kennedy comes to it i mean actually i mean we've got to be careful not to romanticize bipartisanship 
championship, Nixon and Eisenhower were both furious when uh, when Dylan took the treasury job from Kennedy. In the end, they agreed that he had to do it because of the to in, because of the American interest, but they yeah. were actually fu furious at him for doing it. So you know, sometimes, especially today on days like today, where you know we've been watching what's going on in the House of Representatives with Kevin McCarthy and so on, that you know we sometimes we look back and we romanticize the past. Um, there were there were political rivalries in those days too. There you go. And and for context, people who watch our videos 10 to 15 years from now, Kevin McCarthy was just removed from the Speaker of the House. In fact, he's the first, uh, he just made history as the first uh, House Speaker has been removed. Yes, yeah, uh, so it's, it's an unprecedented and unprecedented act. You know, an interesting, an interesting uh, uh, spectacle on uh, leadership and uh, politics. When you want something so bad just to be Speaker, uh, so you can put your name in the history books that you're willing to sell your soul for anything and anything just to get the position. Here's what you get. You made history, buddy. Good job. <laughs> and it is, it is interestingly, it is one of the things actually about Douglas Dillon that mm. kind of in, in some ways uh, gives him a kind of a power because, mm -hmm. you know, as the son of one of the richest men in the United States, uh, and with this kind of um, Wall Street to fall back on, it mm. meant that he could always speak truth to power. That mm. you know, there are occasions when when he's in Paris, he writes a memo that says, you know, Eisenhower needs to step up. Um, he sometimes he speaks quite you know quite um, harshly to Kennedy and to Johnson because he always knows if you don't like it, that's absolutely fine. I can go back to Wall Street. So he's not one of those. He's not a professional politician in that yeah. way. He's not someone who's always worrying about the next job. Um, you know, you can see you can say what you like about the fact that the money doesn't matter to him, but in that instance, it's something that means that he's always able to maintain his integrity. And I think this is interesting. The, in 1965, when he left office, uh, the Washington Post, the WAPO, recognized Dillon as by far the best secretary of the Treasury of the post-war period. You don't see a lot of endorsements like that from the WAPO these days. They, I think they try and stay more <laughs> down the middle. No, I mean, it's an, it's an incredible record that he had that, I mean, it was the longest, uh, longest peacetime boom in, Amer in American history mm -hmm. uh, at, at that phase. Um, you know, you've got uh, industrial production, uh, personal income, uh, all of these kind of markers of the economy are at, at all time highs. Unemployment is an all time low. Employment is an all time uh, high. So, you know, all of, in all of these regards, and he brings um, the uh, tax, the marginal rate of tax down from uh, now just wait for it Chris I'm just going to just need to prepare you for this so he brings it down from 91% uh -huh. 91% down to 70 so you know that's the that's the the kind of impact that he's having, and that's part of his legacy as mm. uh, as Treasury Secretary. I mean it's, it's hard to believe now that the marginal rate of tax could be 91% there you go. Now, was that for the highest earning people? So, well, the the marginal is um, is what you is obviously is what you pay on every dollar beyond the kind of the highest rate. Oh. But, be but but below that, he he's also bringing down uh, rates. All of the bands uh, are brought okay. down. So there's a there's an there's an equity inequality uh, about it in in the way that, in the way that he does it. 
maybe that's one of the reasons we felt that was such a good economic era. Um, you know, I think I, there's a lot of different reasons that mix into that. There was the saved up money from people, from boys who came home from, from World War II and, uh, and the, and the, uh, the college program, uh, the housing program and, you know, Levittown and, you know, how we mapped out America after that. And it was like a lot of, there was a lot of money that got poured into the people that saved up on the, during the war that kind of caused that create that whole, uh, white picket fence, dual car garage, um, sort of era that everyone thinks was so wonderful, but it was such a blip on the screen. It, it probably wasn't. Um, and the, that, I mean, that, that, the other thing is that it is worth saying, though, is that they, when he came into office, they were predicting quite a deep recession. So, oh, really? you know, this kind of economic performance, I, I think, is you know, is generally regarded. You know, even um, people like Paul Sa uh, Samuelson, e economist, I think he wins the Nobel Prize. Um, you know, so, uh, kind of says that history will. Uh, his phrase is something like, "History will bow down to uh, to, the, to the memory of Douglas Dillon." Of course, one of the results of that is what you referred to right at the very start, that it means that all the money is there uh, mm -hmm. for the great society and also for the Vietnam War. And it's those things that then uh, begin this kind of period uh, of economic difficulty and, and particularly uh, high inflation that runs through the, uh, through, from the, the, the late 60s through into the 70s. There you go. A very interesting thing on 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 politics. I I suppose I don't know. Do we need more money men in business in in politics, or do we need um, more career politicians? Which do you, do you think there's a better way, or is it just dependent from man to man? I think that that politics is actually best when you get as wide a range of people involved mm -hmm. when politics represents society that I mean one of the the problems with the professional politicians um, is that you know they t they tend to all be uh, very similar I mean mm -hmm. I think we've moved away from a kind of an earlier period and this is not just the United States but it's you know across the uh, Western democracies uh, too that you know that 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 kind of tradition uh, of working class politicians coming from the shop floor to uh, to Congress and and uh, kind of representing the interests of the working class that has gradually diminished over time, um, and I think that you know on the uh, on the other side you know you have this this sense of um, kind of politicians constantly having to think about raising money that money has uh, that politics yeah. has become so expensive that it kind of it it makes it more and more difficult for uh, individuals to kind of stand on their principles because they're always having to look over their shoulder uh, and think about donors, think about challenges, raising money for campaigns and uh, and so on. So I think that what you might describe as the kind of the ordinariness of politics mm -hmm. has really declined over the last 50, 60 years. And, and rulings from SCOTUS like Citizens United and a few others that made it so you can buy your politicians. Um, you know, you can, you can buy your SCOTUS thing evidently now if you're a billionaire. You can own your own uh, 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 SCOTUS uh, uh, member. Um, yeah, just buy your own judge, really, when it comes down but, to it. But, you know, I think that, I, I, personally, I think we always have to be careful uh, with kind of one of, the, one of the other problems around the difficulties with politics is that, you know, we're always, we're always saying that Washington is broken, that politics is corrupt, that uh, the Supreme Court is, is, is corrupt and can be bought. And I think that, you know, that, that kind of degrades the political process as well, that, you know, there, there have been... Uh, 
um, whatever about the kind of the individual cases and individual decisions of the the Supreme Court, it's still consistently over the course of American history has has been one of the essential bulwarks to uh, defending uh, democracy and the and the vision of the the founders in this kind of uh, division of power. So you know, it's it's a it's a really really tricky balance, I think. And I, I agree with you. It's, 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 uh, well, we throw a lot of jokes around the show and, and a lot of segues, uh, uh, into different things. Uh, and you know, we, you know, sometimes it's easier to do the cheap joke. Uh, there are a lot of people, as you mentioned, that pick up on that and they just throw up their hands and, and become, uh, agnostic. They just don't care and they don't vote. And they're like, oh, I don't, why should I vote? Cause you know, like you mentioned, uh, you know, well, you know, there's so much that's bad, but actually, you know, and we talk about this on the show from time to time, the problem is the people who don't vote in this country, um, and they don't give a damn. Uh, and that is the problem because the people who end up giving a damn voting and running this country are the people that, um, you know, sometimes aren't the best people and we need everybody in this democracy to take care of it because, um, it, it's it's fragile and uh everybody needs to vote and everyone needs to care and everyone needs to be involved you I, i'm a big believer that you get the government that you vote or don't vote for if you even if you don't vote you have made a choice um and you made a choice for some of the the worst people to get into power because then you it's now just up to the parties instead of the average middle america sort of person so that, those are my thoughts on it you get the government you you uh you you vote for so if you don't like the people maybe you should go look in the fucking mirror i don't know what do you yeah. think yeah and you know on that on that question of uh, people not voting that you know so sometimes uh, sure people don't uh, maybe maybe don't vote because they can't be bothered but a lot of people don't vote because they don't feel any connection exactly. uh, with politics that they feel disenfranchised by mm -hmm. the political process that you know there is uh, as I, I i say this as a, as an outsider as a as a, a newcomer to the country um since mm -hmm. uh, 2010 that there is no country like the United States, which uh, discusses its politics more, that takes a pride in its politics, it, you know, uh, kind of endlessly discusses the political process. Um, really? And I, and I, yeah, absolutely. That hmm. I mean, you know, that I mean, we're already talking about the 2024 uh, presidential election. Um, it's more than a year away uh, in in the UK, which is a very mature uh, and successful uh, democracy. You mm. know, we we usually complain about an election campaign that takes six or seven weeks. Uh, <laughs> well, that's it. right. You guys so, are shorter in your time. Yeah, so yeah. you know, there's a there's a sense in which um, you know, kind of Americans are really invested in their in their democracy. So it's about trying to find a way to take that fascination with politics, that real commitment, uh, but but reconnecting with people so that they feel that they have that connection with the political process, with what's going on in uh, in uh, Washington. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, I kind of, I wrote the book about Dylan was because partly I'm fascinated by this earlier era uh, mm -hmm. where, you know, it, it there is just more general uh, appreciation and understanding of the political system where people are able to work across the aisle, where they are a bit more pragmatic uh, about things, where it's quite possible for a politician from one party to work in the government of another party. There mm. are currently no Republicans in Joe Biden's uh, administration. Uh, when Donald Trump was president, there were no 
Democrats in his cabinet, that Mike Flynn, the short-lived national security advisor, was the only high-profile Democrat uh, in that administration. So we've moved away <laughs> from a time where people can work together, can draw ideas from the other side, where they might think that the people on the other side of the aisle are not necessarily their enemy, they're just their opponent. There you go. Yeah, I, I always thought that, you know, maybe I watched the House of Lords too much uh, with you guys arguing over there. It's, it, it's fun to watch the debates in there and, and some of the slings that you guys throw at each other uh, in the House of Lords. Um, and, and so I've, it's kind of fun to watch those that politics over there. And I always assume you guys uh, from, you know, watching the house uh, that i'm like wow this is uh, the, you know, their parliament wow, is, uh, they must uh, throw around a lot of politics but i forgot you guys do have a shorter run as do a lot of other countries um for uh running for office um it, i wonder why this is so long is it because we're such a huge country and it takes so long to tour around and kiss the babies and and shake hands or are we just uh i don't know just obsessed with ourselves because we're americans I don't think it's that you're obsessed with yourself, but you're, as I say, you're, you Americans, uh, it seems to me, are, are obsessed with politics, that you, right. know, you love politics, you love the game. Mm. And that, let's face it, it's not just Americans, is it? We're, we're all, the whole world is fascinated by the presidential election, partly because it's the, uh, the to elect the most powerful person, uh, office holder in the entire world, but also because, you know, presidential election is a blood sport that, you know, at the, at the end of the day, you go through this process, you see people that you think are absolutely brilliant, just wilt before your eyes. Yeah. Um, and at the end, at the end of the day, it comes down to this kind of gladiatorial combat, uh, mm. where it's just the you know the 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 representative of one major political party versus the representative, the nominee of the other major political party, and they just go hell for leather at each other, and uh, it just it just makes for a fantastic vision. But as I say, you know, the United States, for all the faults of its politics, is one of the most stable. Uh, political uh, and successful political systems uh, in the world. So, you know, something is working, uh, even when things are not working, <laughs> something is working. working. There you go. And, and people don't realize that. Uh, I mean, we, yeah, we have a democracy that's fraught with all sorts of stuff. Yeah, it's fragile. Yeah, it's still, you know, I, I a lot of people on, uh, assume that when it says the democracy that we're, or the constitution, that we're a perfect union. No, it's 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 that we're uh, moving towards a perfect union, which will probably always be moving uh, towards a perfect union. You know, uh, President Obama said it best: "We zig and we zag, and we go back and forth, and sometimes we go really back this way and over this way hard." And and uh, but uh, you know, it's still one of the best uh, things for democracy in the world, and the, I think the best experiment for. He, the the spirit the idealism of the human spirit i think what's really when i used to look at the ussr when i was growing up i'm kind of dating myself gen xers gen zers are like what's the ussr uh we used to hide us, our us, us gen x people have to stick together yeah we do um the uh, greatest generation ever uh but when i used to look at the two of them as an entrepreneur i i realized that capitalism was really about the spirit of the human spirit, the potential that you could do anything and be anything. And the, the cat and the communism was really about 
just just pushing down, controlling and containing human spirit and and the ideal. And I think that's why we technically won, or at least I think we won. I guess we have to wait a few hundred more years to see if we won, get as far as the British, uh, you know, a thousand years down the road. So give us your final thoughts in your book, what you want people to remember and pitch to pick up the book. As we go on. Yeah, so so I think there are there, really there are two things. That the the first thing is just to kind of be interested in this guy. That mm-hmm. you know this this is somebody uh, who uh, you know made mistakes, yes, but was a, a really serious figure from the time. Um, and partly because of what happens at the end of the Kennedy administration with the tragedy of the assassination, and then the myth of Camelot, and then we're straight into Vietnam. Um, mm-hmm. that, that he tends to he's just been forgotten. So he's a He's an underappreciated figure, but one who I think is worthy uh, of investigation. Um, and then the second thing to take away from it is that this this book is an illustration. It's an example of when politics was done differently. And mm. it's not saying that politics was done perfectly during that time. That I mean, you only have to look at uh, segregation in the South to realize mm. that this was not a perfect society or a perfect political society. Far from it. But mm. there were there was a way in which politics was done, a kind of pragmatism, a kind of evolving towards social progress that uh, I think is worthy of revisiting, just because it, it gives such a stark contrast to the way in which our own politics are conducted today. There you go. Uh, we need more we need a little more sanity, more people that are working down the middle. I think this, like you say, this is great that the uh, gentleman is working uh, with, with both sides of the aisle. We need more of that. And, and as you said, you know, today when we see the extremist in, in the House of Representatives uh, literally overthrowing a Speaker of the House because they can't get their way and being able to do that, I mean, just with four votes, that they had at, at their disposal. I think he lost by six in the house. Uh, I noticed Pelosi abstained or she wasn't in the house chamber at the time, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, I, w- I was waiting to hear her vote. Um, but, but the fact that, you know, the extremists of a party can overthrow their speaker is kind of, you know, it's kind of scary. Cause you're like, geez, you know, we've seen populism rise around the world. Uh, uh, I believe uh, who is it just elected a, a populist leader uh, in one of the Slovakia? I think just uh, Slovakia. That's right, and and yeah. Italy. Italy has a, a populist far right leader yeah. as well, and Hungary too. Victor Orban, yeah. Hungary. To be noted, uh, it's the original party in in uh, in uh, Italy of, of Mussolini. So there you go. And evidently, a lot of Europe is leaning that way. So there you go. Uh, but yeah, it's a scary time in history and interesting. So the more we can, the one, as I said before the show, the one thing man can learn from his history is that man never learns from his history. So please, for the love of God, people, buy history books and learn from them. Thank you very much, Richard, for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Give us any dot com if you want people to look you up on the internet, please, sir. Yeah, so it's bard.edu, uh, which is Bard College, uh, and AmericanPurpose.com, where I host the Bookstack podcast. There you go. Thank you very much, Richard, for coming on the show. This has been really fun, and I'm going to look forward to your book, and I'm going to go grab that Schlesinger book, too. I'm really into that. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Chris. It's really been a blast. Thank you. And thanks, our audience, for tuning in. It's always a blast to have you guys as well. Go to goodreads.com, Fortress Chris Foss, LinkedIn.com, Fortress Chris Foss, YouTube.com, Fortress Chris Foss, and Chris Foss One. Be good to each other, stay safe, and we'll see you guys next time. And that should have us out. Lots of fun.